GM friends, and welcome to the future of gaming. You are listening to our weekly podcast. We're back, weekly cadence. Um, good to see you all. We have Devin Becker, Sebastian Park, and David Benahum. Benahum, am I pronouncing that correctly? Benahum, sounds good. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, great to have you. David's the CEO at Ready Games. Um, but yeah, maybe you can just introduce yourself very briefly and then we can talk about what you're building at Ready Games. Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me to come on today. I am David, the CEO and co-founder of Ready Games. My background actually is in gaming. been spending the last 15 years building mobile gaming products. And I would say about two years ago, as a company uh, supported by Bitcraft and others, we saw an opportunity uh, to create Web3 gaming tools and protocols to really reduce the friction uh, for game publishers to come on chain. And as a game technology company, it felt very much in our wheelhouse. So we'll talk more about the trends we're seeing in gaming on, on this episode, but uh, very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I love it. And we also have Seb, Sebastian Park, who you've been here a couple of times, but for the people that don't know you yet, Seb, can you give us a few words? Yeah, my name is Sebastian Park. I am a venture partner at Bitcraft, focused mostly on the intersection of consumer, emerging tech, and gaming. And then I am also the co-founder of Infinite Canvas, which is a user-generated gaming company that works often in platforms like Discord, Roblox, Fortnite Creative, using all sorts of fun tooling. So basically, I just do gaming, and it's a ton of fun. So, so Seb, what can you tell you? So you sent me a link to a Discord, and there was a bunch of stuff happening. In two minutes, what are you experimenting with? Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that we've been working on the last eight or nine months is making sure to patch one of the biggest issues with making the creator-consumer ratio better. Basically, how can we make it so that the number of players who are playing our games are creating content inside the game, or at least they feel like they're creating content. And one of the easiest ways to do that historically has been to basically do white glove service work with them. Our solution now is to effectively use a lot of the, you know, emergent gen AI tooling in order to give people the exact same type of feeling around it that we wanted to give them for a while. And so that's a lot of the fun stuff. You've probably saw CreatureCraft, which is one of our new Discord games. That's been a ton of fun and really pushing, trying, push that boundary a little bit harder and faster. Awesome. In a future episode, we'll, uh, I'm, I'm down to dig in. And by the way, if, if this sounds like a very Bitcraft heavy episode, that is purely coincidental. All right. Um, Devin, Devin, Devin didn't know that, didn't expect that. But uh, Always, always tagged in by the VC. So I'm glad you're here, David. So like, I'm not outnumbered. It's, it's even this time. All right. Good. Thank you. So, David, Ready Games. Um, perhaps could you walk us through the you know the beginning of the the starting of the company. Um, you know what you were focused on, and then how you got to where you are today. So we started actually about uh, five years ago in 2017. Our focus was, and it's been the same, I would say, throughout our journey as a as a technology company. It's been around empowering creator communities and democratizing access to game creation. That's a thesis that I think a lot of people have. Gaming being the largest entertainment category in the world, you know, even Sebastian, what you were talking about, you know, making it easier for people to create gaming content, whether it's within a game with UGC tools or outside of the game with developer tools, the more people who can make this type of content, generally the thesis is the better because it's such a dominant form of entertainment. Uh, so more is more. Uh, on the developer side, uh, that's a different arena than UGC. We actually started in UGC, right? So our initial product at Ready was a product called Ready Maker. It's an amazing product. It's actually still in the market today. It's mostly used in schools to enable kids to create little mini apps and games on top of Unity without knowing how to code. So it's a beautiful tool. Uh, we couldn't figure out how to make money with it. It's a small but critical problem, right? Uh, we did not actually ever take it down because in a sort of do-good-for-the-world way. It's just too awesome that there's thousands of schools using it. And I think up to 3 million kids now have built on it. But for the life of us, we couldn't figure out how to make money. Um, from there, we developed an esports competition platform. That's actually when Bitcraft invested back in 2019. And we were running cash gaming, um, basically like a really awesome, hyper-casual, skill-based cash gaming platform called Ready Games. Very, very popular. I think part of why it became so popular is um, people made money on it. And yet again, the same unfortunate problem arose, which is everyone else is having fun and making money, but we're not. <laughs> um, and that's, I think, a, a, 
kind of a general challenge in cash gaming around skill-based games because what you see is a sort of ironic adverse selection where the most skilled people obviously do really well and um, it's not that much fun for everybody else. There's no randomness or chance. Once you bring that in, it looks more like gambling, right? Which is not something we wanted to do. I would say the analogy is if if uh, you could win prize money in athletics, um, we'd all kind of realize pretty quickly that you know one out of 10,000 people are just extraordinary athletes and uh, yeah, they would probably win all the time and we'd be nuts to go into a competition with them because uh, it's pretty clear we're not going to be anywhere. And I think gaming isn't any different really. At some point you realize, geez, you know, this is a truly skill-based thing. So in that scenario, um, we were like, how can we create incentives for players to be motivated to play and win without using cash? That was in 21. And the obvious thing, not so obvious, but it was clear to us that one avenue was something around non-fungible tokens and digital assets that they could own, be prized around. And so we began to explore, like, how do you make that happen in a gaming context, especially on mobile? We're, we're very strong in mobile. And what we ran into, I would say, the middle of 21 was this realization that the tooling is so hard, the technical challenges to bring a game on chain are just really, really meaningful in a way that reminds me of like, wow, you'd have to go back to like the 90s or something to, when the internet was so new to discover that, hey, there's no cloud-based computing and there's no way to do real-time game operations on the network. It was almost at that level of difficulty. So that's sort of set off good uh, little lights in our heads where it's like, look, if we're having this much trouble as a really tech-first gaming environment, um, we know that most publishers would be as well. So we began to build out what we thought would be really the tooling to enable mostly Web 2 publishers to come into Web 3. And we did have a model a little bit, like just operationally. We're, we're very familiar with products like um, GameSparks and PlayFab. Some of the people listening to this might know these products. They're essentially full-service solutions to enable game developers to do a lot of real-time operations in a Web 2 environment. But the methods, the way you would approach it in terms of bringing those methods into your Unity or Unreal package primarily um, is similar to, in the end, what we developed at Ready Games, right? Which is essentially the full suite of solutions necessary to bring a game on chain. And what that means is like all of the elements involving the player onboarding, meaning the creation of the user identity on chain, the methods to do that, the creation of the wallet in real time in the game itself, um, while being compatible with Apple and Google uh, distribution rules. So not only on PC, et cetera, but also on an Android or iOS device. And then from there, you kind of follow the player journey, all the methods for the developer to essentially create their in-game assets that they want to have as NFTs. So that involves a smart contract management tool for the developer. They don't have to write their own smart contracts. It involves linking those NFTs to all of the payment gateways, especially for the app stores, right? That's going to bring things in compliance. So you have to link actually multiple databases together. We provide that solution. And then from there, the game can operate. You can A-B test your pricing. Stuff starts going on chain. And then at that point, the user journey, the transactions um, begin to occur on chain as well, like when there's events in game. In fact, I have a little video here that will show real-time events occurring in an Unreal, in this case, an Unreal first-person shooter, like actually occurring. So I don't know if this is the moment to look at it, but for the audience, it could be fun. I know a lot of you are on audio, so you'll have to kind of visualize this. Just describe your, it to everyone out loud. Yeah, I will describe it. I'm a good describer. So I will I will narrate as if it's an audio book <laughs> for those of you who are Love not it. listening. So I've started sharing my screen, and I assume everyone here is... Uh, seeing my screen who's on the video side of things. So I'm just going to sort of play through this. Basically what we're going to look at here, uh, you're looking at their kind of uh, ready uh, homepage and um, we're going into an Unreal project. Uh, you see the blueprint here. We've loaded up this game and I've just frozen it for a moment just to explain to you what you're seeing on the top left. Normally the player wouldn't see this is the login. We're going to log in in real time to the wallet. On the bottom left, you see the transaction window. It'll show real-time transactions on chain. And then on the top right, you're going to actually see what's going into the wallet, right? And, and on the bottom right, it'll be the actual player inventory. So that's the UI here. Um, so let's just go ahead and log into the wallet. We're logging in, and you see on the top right, that actually happened, right? The user is now logged into their wallet. They have authorization to be putting stuff into their wallet. And in this game, uh, they're going to a crafting area. There's an objective you'll see on the top left. It's to collect those two NFT weapons to then craft this sniper rifle that was shown on the right panel. The only way to get these weapons is to kill the two players that you see in the background there. 
Now he's going to launch a rocket attack. These players, for the purpose of this demo, will conveniently allow themselves to be killed. So let's go ahead and kill them. We've now killed them. Picture two people dead on the ground now, or at least their avatars. And you'll see two weapons next to them. Those conform to the weapons this guy needs. The first weapon on the left, he'll pick them up. What you're seeing now, it says on the bottom left, claiming the NFT. In this case, you're doing a real-time transaction on chain. That has now been claimed, meaning it's been transferred. You'll see on the bottom right, it's going to show up in that player's inventory. It's now in his wallet. He's going to get the second gun and pick that up. And you'll see the same kind of thing happening. The transaction will occur on the bottom left. And now you see he's the happy owner. This is a legal transfer, right? This actually happened legally. Those NFTs move. Now, pretty sweaty uh, in a gaming context to know that if someone kills you, the thing you bought or owned could actually be picked up and legally moved to the player. This is now uh, being detected. He has the two ingredients for the crafting. Crafting does destroy the underlying object. What we're going to do now, just briefly, before we destroy those items and craft the sniper rifle, is we're going to log into the player's web uh, sort of area on Ready, and we're going to look at the player's going to look at their wallet just to show for a moment that this thing indeed did transfer to the player. So he's just logged in. He's going to refresh his screen, and we see, in fact, on the website, the two items that that he picked up are indeed in his wallet. So let's go back to the game. And now what we're going to do is we're going to go to our little crafting table, walk over there, and the crafting table is going to check, does he have what he needs? And so you see the transactions now occurring on chain. The NFT is being crafted. This is the sniper rifle. That's the elite weapon that you can only get. He's actually going to log back into the wallet here. Again, this would not normally happen in-game, but for demo. Okay, so now he has a sniper rifle. You see, bottom right, he holds that rifle. It's been transferred. Let's just refresh on the website. And so we're going to log back in and refresh. And you see now the two previous NFTs are destroyed. He now holds this NFT. So this is really a level of deep um, sort of awesome sauce, right, where you can begin to think about anything happening in a game going on chain uh, in real time. And, and, and that is what we do at Ready, right? It's we reduce the technical friction to really enable this, uh, this level of opportunity to occur. So I'm going to just stop sharing my screen now. Uh, and we can go back to having a conversation. So yeah, thanks for checking that out with me. I hope that was suitably impressive because we feel pretty happy when we see stuff like this. And so do the game publishers that use us because it's a lot of what they want, right? They want to have real-time transactions occurring on-chain. Um, what that does is basically unblock a lot of new game mechanics for Web3. Let's just be clear, right? And the challenge for that is meaningful to make it happen. So uh, those are some of the things we're working on. I'll just sort of pause here for questions or comments or if anybody has a thought on what you just saw. Thoughts. I was impressed by what I saw. I was even more impressed by the narration. That was that was awesome sauce, as we say. Thank you. Um, no, that that looked like you know smooth, fast, efficient. Um, well, can you tell us about the underlying infrastructure? Like, what blockchain was this uh, you know happening on? Yeah. So the underlying infrastructure. First of all, we're, we're chain agnostic, right? Which means in principle that we, su we support the layer twos and layer ones that the publishers come to us wanting to be on, right? Because a lot of publishers yep. have existing relationships with those layers, and our goal is to support those relationships. So what you saw happened on Polygon. Uh, Polygon has been an early partner of ours. In fact, we just launched on Friday something called the D-App Store Kit with Polygon. It's a method to allow Web3, we can talk more about it later, but it allows publishers to stand up their own little mini Web3 app stores on Android, soup to nuts directly, so you can provision the Web3 titles outside of the Google Play Store. That we did with Polygon. Um, so everything you saw there was happening on Polygon. Uh, but we do work with uh, Starkware. Uh, we're in the process of working with a Chrome Away, which is a really powerful uh, layer one as well. You may know them. We do support, we're in the process of supporting Avalanche. Uh, Immutable X, we have another publisher coming on board that works on Immutable that we're going to be helping. So our, our, our position is uh, we want to support all these. So for, you asked the technical question. Um, basically, the d database looks like this. There's a... Um, oh, we lost Sebastian for a moment. He'll come back, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. The database looks like this. Basically, it's a hybrid Web 2, Web 3 um, infrastructure. On the Web 2 side, we're using primarily Google Firebase. We do that because... From the game publisher standpoint, that's where they're going to create their project, kind of instantiate the cloud uh, instance for their game. It's actually pretty important because as we'll get into the granular game data, right now it's too expensive to put everything on chain. So we're running a hybrid Web 2, 
Web 2, Web 3 solution where really granular data is going into Firebase along with analytics. And then the canonical data that needs to go on chain primarily has been going on Polygon. But like I said, other layers can be supported. In terms of what tends to go on chain, it's the stuff that's really vital to the game economy and the player identity. So it's going to be obviously the player identity is on chain. The wallet address is on chain, obviously. Any in-app purchases they make that are NFTs go into that on-chain identity, any achievements, level progression, scoring that the publisher deems canonical and um, of value to put into the player identity at the publisher's discretion, they can write that onto the identity. We, we actually think that's one of the big unlocks around making it easier and less expensive to do this for publishers is that the player identity becomes an incredibly rich store of data actually owned by the player. From there, it unlocks all kinds of really interesting player self-organization opportunities where Essentially, your on-chain identity becomes really valuable, becomes almost your LinkedIn profile of gaming, where you can sort of trust, uh, hopefully the way you can trust on LinkedIn to some degree, but even more trustworthy, that the things they say they did, they really did, because this is all data the publishers put in there, which means players can then begin to organize around teams or leagues with more confidence. They can also, from the publisher perspective, create really interesting incentives uh, to drive game adoption. So a lot of the publishers that are onboarding are really interested in how do we acquire Web3 game players. There's some marketing efficiencies that are showing up. It begins to look more like affiliate marketing, relationship marketing, where you're giving a call to action and incentive. Like you can get this reward if you play my game within this amount of time. And because all this is attributed on-chain, the fraud issues, um, the down-funnel attribution issues are much more stable on Web3 than Web2. Actually, you can't get in there and break it the way like Apple might say, well, do not track, et cetera. Like there's no way to use this attribution tool built in Web2 anymore, which is a real pain point for a lot of mobile publishers a couple of years ago. That doesn't affect us on the blockchain, right? If you are who you are, logged into your ready identity, going into that game where you got an offer, that game can check you are who you are. That offer is an NFT sitting in your wallet and you have come in based on the parameters, like on time to get the unlock of the reward. That's a huge shift in marketing, and we've seen about an 80% drop in customer acquisition costs in the early tests with this, these kinds of methods from the Facebook and Google demand ad type platforms. Um, so that's basically sort of infrastructure-wise. We have an SDK for Unity. We have an SDK for Unreal. That's just a convenience feature that allows you to access the API more easily within the project. And then we have a version of the API that's abstracted for browser-based uh, publishers where they don't use a game engine, and they can actually talk to the API that way. So that pretty much covers the universe. And the publishers, we have about 16 major publishers now onboarded. They represent about 1,400 games collectively, 80 million monthly players in their Web2 titles. And they are PC, they are browser-based, they are Android, they are iOS. We have four live games currently on mobile. And we have, jeez, uh, I mean, one of our publishers, Mini Wagos, has, I think, 1,200 browser-based games, and they're doing a massive migration right now with us to bring that stuff on chain. So it sounds silly when I sometimes say, hey, we could have like 12 or 1,300 games like on chain in the next couple of months, but that's actually why, because <laughs> some of these publishers have just massive volumes of these very successful, you know, Mini Wagos has close to 40 million monthly players. Uh, it's the largest Spanish-language uh, browser-based publisher in the world. And uh, it's pretty amazing to have them coming on board. So uh, that's just sort of gives you a sense of scale and diversity in terms of the types of developers using Ready. Well, <clears throat> so I, I mean, there's probably a million questions to get to go through in, in such a long pitch there. Uh, re- rewinding all the way back to the demo, itself, sure. just a couple of uh, small <laughs> yeah. questions in terms of obviously this goes towards implementation and stuff that you know question people would obviously have to answer if they were to, to use the tools. Uh, the first one being like. Uh, even though you're on Polygon, right? Gas fees, like the situation, the demo you gave, like how would gas fees yeah. be handled in that situation? So Ready handles those fees. We let me explain our business model for a minute because this gets to money and cost, right? So uh, there's two ways that we make money. The first is we take five percent of the financial transaction on chain, right? So when there's an event on chain where essentially money is exchanging hands, we take five percent. It's like a take rate, you know, for any payment processor. Uh, that's the first way. That is independent of of Web3 in the sense that it doesn't require a token or not a token. It's just basically 5%. It's a software as a service model. It's an enterprise software model. It's pretty canonical. In exchange for that, you can use the software for free. We don't charge a licensing fee, a setup fee, a subscription fee. Um, And you can go to our website right now and provision the Unity SDK right now today. And the documentation is there. And it's like frictionless. So we make money there. Now, number two, 
We also sell something called Fuse Blocks. Fuse Blocks are the necessary component to mint your NFTs in your developer dashboard. The Fuse Block contains some quantity of the system token called ReadyX, and it contains a smart contract wrapper that's going to allow you to mint your like ERC-1155 contract, et cetera, whatever it may be you're using. We have a bunch of different templates. That is going to pay for your gas fee and transaction fee, right? So when you're doing that minting, we're paying for it there. Then when you start getting into uh, player-to-player economies, that's going to start getting bundled into the cost of the transaction between the players, right? There's going to be a cost there. We don't have to subsidize that. But the initial cost of essentially acquiring the asset, it's all invisible to the player because the fuse block model has covered that. Now, having said that, the zero-knowledge proofing thing that most hopefully listeners on this kind of know what I just said. If they don't, we'll get back to it. But with zero-knowledge proofing, you essentially are just bottom line reducing the transaction cost dramatically. Uh, we're working with Polygon, with Starkware, looking at what Avalanche is doing. It's on our roadmap to do this. That should really reduce the gas fees to such a small fraction that they allow for this unlock around more granular game data that typically you wouldn't put in, especially stuff you're not selling. Right now, when you sell something, paying for that gas or transaction fee makes a lot of sense. When you're not selling something, like you just want to put an achievement into the record of the player, eh, you know, then you got to think about it. Like, wait, there's a transaction cost there. That's a gating factor. That's where you're going to put stuff on Google, Firebase. That's where we have a universal ID that's into the wallet that links back to the JSON file. So it's like semi kind of like decentralized, but not quite. That's the intermediate stage. Eventually all that can come into the wallet. So that's basically how we cover the gas fees. It's through those fuse block sales. You have to buy them. That's the other revenue side. I mean, you answered about what my third question was partway in there, which I was just going to ask if you support other standards like 1155 and stuff like that. But it sounds like that's already covered. So the second question was just around uh, giving permissions for those things. So in the example you gave, obviously receiving an NFT, you're not going to have to give authorization for as a player, but a situation where you're crafting something from your NFT, for example, how, like is this a situation where it's custodial wallets or something like uh, how are you handling like player authorization of these transactions. So it's a non-custodial wallet, right? The player in-game creates a passphrase where like they only are the only ones who know that passphrase. Um, the the crafting always occurs, you know, you need to do that in-game. Let's just be, you know, crafting is an in-game experience. It's an entertainment experience. It's like Sebastian, you would, you know, knows this. Like the crafting tool itself is a piece of software delivered by a publisher. You can't sort of craft something outside of that environment. So the publisher, when they create that tool, meaning the crafting tool, can set the rules on what can be crafted, what can't. Just like in Minecraft, like this, like you can't craft something that Minecraft doesn't support by nature, right? Um, and so it's the same logic here. So, so a player... Uh, is always crafting within the context of the game, and then the publisher can set the parameters. This is now game design. We're just getting into pure game design. Like, why can you craft this, not craft that? It's because the game publisher made a design decision that this supports our business model, our game loops, etc. So that's basically how the authorization happens. It's because the publisher has authorized it and the game supports it. Well, I mean, in the case that you're you're essentially burning or modifying the NFT that they had, right? Like, so they had the the sniper rifle or whatever, and they did something with it. They they no longer have that sniper rifle. Therefore, like something happened to an NFT, quote unquote, in their possession. That's what I'm wondering about. Is that that sort of authorization to like the players also that lost the NFTs when you when you killed them and took the NFTs? Correct. So let's talk about that. It's a great question, Devin. So like in the smart contract for the original crafting items, the publisher, which essentially made those items, right? That's how they were acquired. It's through the publisher. In the smart contract, there's basically uh, ownership rights around that. And when the crafting event occurs and the player essentially wants to destroy those two items to create the third, the third item itself is also coming from the publisher. And so the publisher has authorization to basically approve uh, the transactions that are occurring on that object because in the smart contract, those reference points are there. So the smart contract is the control that um, kind of ensures like this is permitted or not and who's the control right. It's like the game has admin access to do whatever with those NFTs as you would expect because yeah. they control the smart contract. That, exactly. that makes sense. Like, because obviously, is a distributed... Yeah, go ahead, right. sorry. Yeah, I mean, I mean that makes sense, right? Because they're they're controlling the contract. The contract can have, you know, I mean, is it sort of like a backdoor in a way? But it's like I've been access to for the game to modify. And the game is essentially the ones then signing that basically that transaction. Correct. It's like okay. code signing, right? I mean, I often think about this stuff as code signing at scale. You know, where every NFT is sort of signed, and the, there's multiple signatures on it, and one, some of the signatures have really canonical kind of parent rights, and the publisher is one of those canonical 
probably super super rights holders that can set canonical permissions on that contract. That's why, by the way, you're buying. Remember, I said you have to buy these fuse blocks to make your stuff. It's yeah, because like we're giving you these templates, these smart contract templates to do this rather delicate surgery that you're describing, Devin. Um, they're not writing in Solidity like we've done that effort, and they have a drop down menu system where that's like a wizard, where within the type of contract they want to use, they can set the the kind of metadata around the contract to give these permissions. And that's why from the publisher's point of view, it's like, okay, this is easy, like compared to doing the alternative, which is write my own contract in Solidity, have it audited. Because as you pointed out, like maybe there's vectors, attack vectors. So we take on that burden. Like that's our risk as ready. Like we do that, um, which I think for the publisher is a good unlock for them just to focus on what they want to do, which is game design game economy and not so much this important other technical stuff that's not in their wheelhouse because it's genuinely hard. Over the past couple of months, years, we've seen quite a few tooling companies pop up that are essentially trying to solve the same problem, which is the layer between the Web2 game dev and the blockchain. What would you say makes you or differentiates Ready Games? I think there's there's a few things that, because we are getting a huge amount of traction right now, and it feels like there's a breakout happening a little bit in our direction. So I think one thing is we are truly feature complete, uh, the full stack of what's needed in a game. Um, that feature completeness is really important. I think a lot of other people in this space are semi-feature complete, meaning they might be masterful at wallet creation, kind of user identity creation on chain, some element of maybe... NFT management, but then maybe not the real-time synchronization of the data on chain, the sort of analytics around it, or maybe they're really good at just the analytics part. They can look at data on chain, but they have no provision for a wallet, uh, or they have a wallet, but it's not mobile compatible, or they have an NFT minting solution, but it doesn't integrate with the payment gateways for Apple and Google, and the Web2 virtual currency is required to pay for those assets to bring it in compliance. And so, so you kind of go around this circle, and you're like, there's a lot of components here when I say feature complete. And so we are feature complete. I think we're one of the few that's truly feature complete. Now, there are others that may be close to being as close to us in terms of feature complete. But then I think there's a second advantage we have, which is alignment of business logic. Um, we see people that are feature complete that operate their own layer one or layer two. They make money off the gas fees. Now, that that's a reasonable solution, right? Now, the problem with that solution is you may have a publisher who will raise their hand, and that's we're seeing that a lot, who says, well, wait a minute. If one day your transaction time and cost is meaningfully slower and more expensive than some other option, can I, do I have your permission to still use your software but actually pay this other provider for the transaction? And the answer is legally no. You'll have to rip everything out and start over. Well, that's a risk factor. So that's business logic flaw. Uh, number two or number three, you see also in business logic-wise, certain people are also game publishers. They provide these solutions, but their so-called day job is they actually make games and they acquire games. So now you're saying to a third-party publisher, use my tools, but we're going to have complete visibility into all of your KPIs, all your data. And by the way, our other job is we compete with you. If not today, maybe tomorrow. So if your game is super awesome sauce on Web3, we're going to have the most amazing learning, right? Because we're going to see everything you're doing. And we could potentially come out with something just like yours, maybe even better. Um, so you have these three kind of factors. Are you feature complete? Is your business logic aligned? And are you potentially competing with your own customer? Um, we are not a game publisher. We don't compete with our customers. We are chain agnostic. Our business model, I told you, is that 5% take rate, the sell of those fuse blocks. And finally, we're feature complete. We don't know anybody else, period, worldwide, that can check off those three boxes I think that's why we're seeing this breakout now where we're pulling away and, and, and moving with a different scale than uh, some of the other folks in this sector. I'd love to dig into that business model a bit. Um, but maybe first a, a question that I think is, is relevant for me. When you look at the games that are live now and the games that will be live over the next six months, are those games that already existed pre-Web3? Um, right. Look, yeah, that's actually our go-to-market strategy. Um, actually, I should point that out because it's another—it's a strategic decision we made. So we thought we wanted to de-risk the equation of if you build it, will they come? So one of the basic challenges in, in Web3 gaming is like if you start with a pure play Web3 title, not only does the tech have to work, but your game design has to be awesome. 
it's hard, you know, because you may deliver amazing tech, but then your your partner, the publisher, may not deliver an amazing game experience, and it's unfortunate because a lot of time was spent, you know, making that game go live, and we don't do that. That's not our job. Like we're not the game studio; we're the tech provider. So we decided early on to work with Web two publishers as a primary initial go to market strategy, where they have proven titles with proven audiences, where they see a migration path to up, essentially upgrade the title into Web three loops, player loops, and opportunities. So. We have focused on signing those up, and we kind of super serve that that vertical. So we have Aria Games Canada, which is one of the largest publishers in Canada doing mobile games. Uh, their title is actually ready to go. Uh, we have Simu Games, one of the larger publishers in Asia. Their title, uh, Runestone Keeper, is a card collection game mechanic on PC and Android. That's pretty much in final stages now. I mentioned Miniwagos, the HTML5 browser-based game company. Uh, with about 1,200 games. They're building a whole player loyalty system around Web3 and possible interoperability of the assets within the minigames in certain areas. Uh, we have something called Toro Fun, which is part of IDC, a large independent uh, game publisher in Europe. Toro Fun does social gaming casino platform. Pretty interesting vertical around the ARP DAO there. That's possible. Um, and then we recently uh, s- signed Evil Zeppelin, which has a game, Delementia. You may have heard of it. It's actually an Immutable X project. They're now coming with us to help them with some of the integration there. We'll be supporting them on Immutable. Um, but, and, and so all of these titles, uh, actually Delementia is a pure play Web3 game. So we're starting to see some of those come in as well. We have something called Head Crash Hotel, which is uh, going to be working with us. That is a really groovy, unreal project where you go through like the Chelsea Hotel in New York and uh, acquire NFT-based artworks like in the different rooms. Um, so there is a variety. Uh, we've seen increasingly more Web3 projects coming to us, mostly because they've had major technical friction and they're under a lot of pressure to go live now after so much time. Um, but the go-to-market strategy was to super serve and is to super serve the, uh, that Web2 community that's already committing into Web3. I'd say it's 5 to 10% of the publisher market has made an internal decision that they want to enter Web3, experiment with us. And what we say to them is, look, you're going to get amazing killer KPIs here on how Web3 works. And then from there, you can start looking at what's a pure new title completely built from the ground up for Web3, which is really exciting because that's going to get into a lot more user-generated ownership, stuff like that in the gameplay. Because um, I do think that's one of the big shifts in Web3 from Web2 will be that community participation in the game, something that happens more easily in Web3 in terms of attribution to contributions, which again, I know Sebastian, like you're probably all over this because that is sort of the logic and a lot of the UGC for Web3. Um, but we're not quite there yet with these Web2 publishers. Right now, they just want to get the KPIs. Uh, so we like that model. We think it's, it also de-risks um, the user acquisition, right? So all the games we deal with tend to have a quarter million or more monthly active players today. Um, so when we go live with them, we don't really have the risk factor of, uh, well, maybe no one will show up to play the game. Um, there's going to be people there. And that's that's just de-risks the whole thing for us a little bit, which we like. Sebastian, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, my big question, David, for you is harkens to you know the decision making behind the pivot itself, right? Like to move into this direction, you you went after two business lines that you saw. Wow, the the business isn't making sense for you guys. Made sense for a lot of people playing on the platform, but it didn't make sense for you guys. Yeah. how's it how's it going with you guys on and on this approach in Web three? This, this one is getting a lot of traction with, thankfully, sound business logic behind it. So, well, the others had a lot of traction, and in the end, we didn't see a clear path to uh, you know, actually being a profitable company, ultimately. This feels very aligned, right? Because we can model out the transaction volume. We think we have a shot at getting to profitability, actually, by the end of the year as these games go, go live, because the transaction volume could be meaningfully high. Um, and our burn is very controlled, right? We're quite capital efficient as a company. Um, I think, you know, technology is a really, really brutal sector, right? We're in the most difficult thing in the world, which is like startup tech. And uh, the fail rate is really, really high. It's got to be like 95% or something, right? If you really think about it. So those of us who succeed, I think we all have something in common, which is we're pretty agile around uh, learning and then moving to something that makes more sense and that there's no shame in it. And that as a team, like part of what qualifies you to survive and ultimately return your investor capital and hopefully do well for everybody is that you're willing to take on a no BS approach to like what you're doing and you're not going to dream and hope beyond the data. And so I think we're pretty good internally at just being very honest with each other as a team. And uh, 
I'm proud of that actually that um you know, we just don't let things go on for too long when we ultimately don't see a solution. Because I think companies sometimes do that. There's this kind of like, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe. It's so tempting. So much emotional investment has been made into the product. I get it. I mean, I have it too. But we've learned a certain discipline where we're just like, look, we all love each other as a team. We're going to be awesome here, guys. Like, it's cool. You know, our investors like Bitcraft understand this dynamic too. Um, and we have others, by the way, uh, who understand this dynamic too. And so we just embrace it. Uh, and in this case, it does feel really good. Like this does feel very solid in terms of how things are playing out. Wait, can you tell us about some of the KPI KPIs you're seeing and specifically the relevant KPIs, which is, I guess, on-chain transactions and the likes? So I think one KPI, so we have uh, four games, right? That These are like the alpha cohort that went live in the fall. Um, when we were really like testing out all the infrastructure. So these games went live August, September, October. Actually, we have another game that went live about six weeks ago. And so we have, these are all Android and iOS titles. They're all free-to-play mobile games. So this is the most ruthless, brutal, kind of casual model. Um, meaning what exactly? Meaning the margins, the unit economics are inherently tough. So this is what I can tell you. Uh, for the Web3 cohorts that were coming in, the conversion to paid went from about 4.5% in the Web 2 version to it spiked to about 40% in web for the Web 3 cohorts. Um, now, that's normal if you look at uh, enthusiasm, early adopter enthusiasm. Also, I think below that is the idea of ownership and interoperability. So I think this is beginning to graph onto like one of the theses here around Web 3 is that there's something important about ownership for players in games. Web 3 allows that to happen. And so we did see a shift from about 45 to 40% in terms of the conversion to paid in the same free-to-play title as it went through that cycle of going from like having no NFTs to having NFTs in them. The second thing we saw was the ARP DAO, average revenue per daily active user, went from about $0.11 cents to $0.30. Cents. So that's a very significant shift as well. So you're seeing both more players buying and then spending more when they did. This, I think, all goes back to the hypothesis that ownership is meaningful. Uh, whether it's sustainable, though, is a different question. So you saw a huge spike, and then as those players pushed through, it kind of reverted back to the mean. So that, I think, gets to the game design question of, you know, as a game designer, what are you doing to maintain that player interest? Now we're getting into Web3 ownership questions in game design, and that's the next frontier, I think, of really thinking through the long-term scalability in Web3. It's this new types of game design, but you saw that come in. Now on the cost side... We did do, we have some game guilds that we work with, like Snack Club is a partner of ours, one of the largest gaming guilds in South America. Um, and so we also have our own community. And then so as these titles go live, we encourage our community to try them. And we see that the blended CAC ultimately uh, fell by about 80%, meaning the customer acquisition cost, the cost per install for these Android titles and iOS titles came down by about 80%. What's going on here? Basically, you can drive installs outside of the typical Facebook, Google uh, sort of display ad loops. Um, when you put those two things together, like the KPIs around revenue and around the cost of acquisition, your unit economics look really good, right? That's a really appealing uh, confirmatory signal. Now the next question becomes, let's do this at scale and let's sustain it, right? That's actually what we have to get to next. Um, so as these bigger, more polished games go live, we will be doing a lot of um, just transparent content marketing. You know, we'll give some reports. We'll share with everyone what we're seeing. Um, but that is what we need to see at this point is that it sustains and it grows, uh, which really becomes a game design question, which I think is an amazing question because that's actually the really fun stuff. It means the tech is working. Uh, let's just have fun building awesome games. This moment reminds me a little bit of uh, actually casual free-to-play in 2010 on mobile. Everybody in the gaming sector was like, that's never going to work. That's crazy. Uh, and it became, as you know, one of the largest categories of revenue in gaming globally. I think Web3 is a bit at the same point now. Like, is this really going to work? Like, what's it going to look like? The answer will be written over the next six months as titles like ours go go live and more, not just ours, go live with this type of KPI. Um, and best practices will start to emerge. Like, what does it really look like to design a game successfully in Web3 from the ground up? Uh, and we have some intuition about th about that, but we're going to get more and more data to help guide because everything in the end will be somewhat data driven as well as uh, art driven. That's the reality of game design. It's a fusion of art and science. Actually, David, you brought up a really good point there. You know, given that you're no longer you know making games in of itself and not picking favorites in a lot of ways, like what's your intuition here? Like what when you see how the world's changed, especially 
in this segment of the market the past six to 12 months. Like, What's your projection in terms of things that you know, not only make your business model work, but also make the business model of other game studios out there for the next six to 12 months? Which I think basically takes us to the end of this year to the summer of next. I think there's going to be um, the more value an asset has in in terms of like viability long term, not only in a game but in a gaming ecosystem, uh, the more interesting it is for a player to like acquire and use that asset. So that puts game design opportunity and pressure on the publishers to think through. In my game loops, like where are the points where a player can actually contribute to the creation of this game in a sense by not only acquiring this asset but in some way modifying it, bringing value to it, and then using it in the context of the game in a way that brings more playability and fun to the game. It it does point to more things having uh, multiplayer elements, right? It feels very much like Web3 is a multiplayer environment, not a solo environment at all. The more synchronous the play, it feels the more exciting it becomes as opposed to asynchronous. And that begins to point to certain game genres like battle royales, like sandbox type games where there's a lot of crafting and creation and and where player identity is really important, meaning what the player looks like, their skin, all of that points to like juicy opportunities in Web3. And so it does mean as a publisher, like where are those design points in my game? where I can bring forward these dynamics of, you know, the community of the players in the game, how they collaborate, how they cooperate. And really the frontier beyond that is like, what does it mean for the game itself in terms of elements of its design to be coherently like generated by the behaviors of the community? And that's a really fascinating thing. And, And actually, but not unusual, right? So the whole kingdom's kind of genre of gameplay, right? Where civilizations are kingdoms, you know, where you're like crafting a whole world and there's other players doing it. You could raid each other, potentially create alliances. We know that that's actually game design, right? I mean, in a sense, the players are designing all the levels in a a well-built kingdoms game. So it's not like crazy what I'm saying. I mean, this actually is understood. Uh, You're just going to see, I think, more and more of that. And then I think for the players, the other thing that I think they're going to really appreciate is the intro operability of their profile, whether it's a ready profile, other profiles, be able to link other profiles into one canonical profile. The idea that that people can spend, and when I say people, it's people, especially people like coming of age as gamers, like te- like I was, you were, et cetera, as teenagers who might be spending 20 plus hours a week gaming, it's like a primary entertainment factor for those people to begin to acquire a reputation like into their identity, like 13, 14, 15, 16. It's amazing. And then you keep that identity potentially for like as long as you want. Think about if you're a gamer who's been playing for 10 years. Like what it would mean if you had an identity that was with you, that was provable, verifiable, reflected all the types of stuff you'd done as a gamer. Who knows what new social fan-based dynamics, like interesting community dynamics would unlock with that type of provability. Um so all of that is sort of the halo effect of Web3. It is a fundamental shift in a really interesting way of how this entertainment category works by distributing ownership, by distributing, uh, I think, credibility out to the edges, away from the core. Um, and it will create new winners and, of course, some losers along the way too because it's a big shift in the business model, how you think about the game design. D- David, actually, you said something in there that I just wanted to touch back on because it's something that's come up, I know, on this podcast a bunch, but also something that's coming up a lot in this in society and overall, which is the the tools and the upside of a lot of the non-fungible elements, but not just that, but also just the interoperable and just the, the core thesis around Web3 seem to lend itself more to multiplayer synchronous play. Unfortunately, as, you, as we have all discussed on this podcast, like right now the player bases just don't have enough people in order to support synchronous multiplayer at really any scale. Like what it seems like such a chicken and egg problem. And I know yeah. again, this is not necessarily um, the core of ready games, but rather, you know, harkening back to your experience, sort of curious, like what would you recommend to all of these game publishers and studios out there that are trying to solve this problem? So it's a great question, uh, Sebastian. I appreciate it. And and I think, so this is what we're seeing now, right, with some of the publishers is the metagame, these are publishers with more solo titles and like non-multiplayer titles that want to em- enter Web3. The first inflection point is what I call the metagame. So the metagame is everything that happens kind of outside the core game. 
The metagame is going to be the player identity um, and any type of information that can be shared outside of the game with other players. Beyond that, you get into loyalty programs where, as a publisher, I may have multiple titles. They're all kind of solo titles, casual titles. And the opportunity in Web3 is to create a loyalty program where, as a player, I have an incentive to continue playing other games in the, in the, in the catalog or the portfolio of the publisher because I'm earning or acquiring non-fungible tokens or other assets that really belong to me. So it's elevating loyalty programs to a new place. And then... In a sense, you've entered into a Web3 dynamic. You're starting to learn as a publisher. How does that change things as a player, right? As, as the player economy evolves, because the loyalty program is powered by Web3, it allows your games to continue to be casual, solo, potential titles, but unlock a whole bunch of potential opportunity there. So I think for the games that are, are going to, and there are going to be plenty of games that are, I mean, like puzzle games, solo games, where you don't play against anybody, I think you're going to see a lot of this emerge inside of the loyalty programs. And where that's valuable for the publisher is once you've acquired a player in game A, the degree to which they stay in your pond and then try game B, game C, game D that you as a publisher publish, from a customer acquisition standpoint, that's a huge lift for your unit economics. Many of the most successful Web2 publishers, especially in casual, what they're masterful at is this cross-promotion. If you really dig into like a lot of their business logic, they're really, really good at making this type of player like stay within their catalog. Web3, I think, will have a lot of drivers to make that even easier to do. Um, so that's another powerful Web3 on-ramp for the people to your question, Sebastian, that don't have that multiplayer kind of sandbox element in their games. And in fact, if you look at the publishers working with us now, like again, I'll point to like Mini Wagos, for example, like... You know, a lot of these games are single-player games, but they're building that loyalty program around them. Um, and I think that's the kind of opportunity we see here to, to a publisher who, who, who has these more casual solo titles. Part of the um, what I think is, is the biggest challenge for the Web3 industry today, apart from mainstream narratives and um, low numbers in terms of um, token prices, is just the um, friction for onboarding. And so my question for you, David, is if I'm playing one of the games that have been integrated um, with the Ready platform, do I feel that I'm actually using the, um, or like interacting with the blockchain because things just take a little bit more time than I'd like to? Um, and um, yeah, have you, have you seen any numbers that would indicate in a direction that either, you know, it's it's noticeable for the players or the friction is almost gone. So it, it's important that the friction be almost gone. I just have to move to plug in my computer because like a <laughs> silly person, I forgot to have my AC outlet in. But uh, yeah, no, it needs to occur directly in game. And um, I can actually show you, if we have time, I could show you a, a brief video that actually shows the wallet creation in an iOS game, if that's of interest to the group. Um, but uh, let me just briefly pull that up, right, for a second, because I think it's just worth worth looking at. So let me just uh, let me just show you this right here. Whoops, sorry, bear with me. I'm going to share my screen, and then what we're going to see is in a uh, here we go. I'm going to just open this up right now. So I'm going to go ahead and share my screen again. Here we go. And what you what I'm going to show you is basically this is a deer hunting game. It's on iOS. It's live right now, uh, and it's going to basically show the flow of a player in that game. So you should see my screen. Hopefully, it's come in. Yep. Is that correct for everybody? Great. Sorry yep. for the uh, little slowness here for those of you on audio. Um, but I'm going to just drag this little slider back a little because I happen to be in this area. So I'm just going to hit play. So you're in this iOS game. You can download it. It's a deer hunting game. Uh, it's casual. Basically, the mechanic here is you have to own these sniper rifles to kill the deer. Some of them are NFTs. You have to buy them uh, with virtual currency. In this case, if you buy some of these, uh, I'm going to just pause for a second you see on the top it says special edition rifles there? Those are NFTs, right? And so I'm pausing right now. The player has hit the wall where they don't have a crypto wallet. And so what you're seeing on screen now is a little UI that's in-game that says create a wallet. You'll need a crypto wallet to hold your limited edition hunting gear. Creating one is simple. Enter a password below and you'll be able to access it in-game and on the web. Make sure to write it down somewhere safe because 
Guess what? Non-custodial wallet. We don't say this here, but that's what's happening. So now the player is going to go ahead and essentially uh, create a password. In this case, obviously, it's a demo thing we're showing you. So the password is, uh, I'll just say what it is, one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, not a very secure password. But now it's he's hit my luggage. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'll be sure to travel with you the next time and look for it. Uh, so now he... he uh, or she, for that matter, has went ahead and entered their passphrase for the first time and the wallet is created. I'll just pause here. This occurred live on chain. Like, this is a live game. So it was about a four-second process for this to occur. And now the player can continue. What's basically going to happen going for forward from this point is they're going to continue uh, purchasing their rifle and it's going to go into their, uh, their wallet. Um, and you can go ahead and see that that happened. So that's just a little example. I think to answer your question, what does it look like from a player point of view? Um, as you enter into Web3 in a Web2 environment, this is it. You just saw it. That was the creation of a wallet in real time in a real game on iOS. Pretty frictionless. As you saw, there was nothing crypto about it. Uh, I'll, stop, I'll stop playing that video now because it goes on to do other things. Um, yeah, so pretty proud of how quickly that uh, occurred in terms of the user journey in the game. And that is our wallet. We built that. It's a, it's a ready wallet uh, that works on mobile as well as PC. Etc. Awesome, David. So, quite a few people that listen to this are are building within the space. Um, if they'd like to learn more about Ready, where can they find it? So, you open your browser, you type in Ready dot gg, as in good game, Ready dot gg, and then you're there. And then you just see a big button that says Developer, and you click on that, and you can from there just. Open a developer account through simple OAuth flow. You'll then be able to download the Unity SDK. Uh, we have an Unreal SDK as well, but the Unity one is directly available for download. Um, you can actually bring that into your Unity project right away. Uh, all the developer documentation is on Gitbook. It's fully visible. You can start building right now. It's actually why we do so well with studios. They really love the fact that there's nothing hidden here. Um, but for all of you in Unity who just want to try this, boom, I'd say within... Uh, Honestly, within a couple of minutes, you, you, once you've got the Unity SDK brought into your Unity project and your Unity editor, you'll be able to do the most basic methods like trigger like a wallet creation event uh, right away. And, and you'll be doing that on the testnet. So we, we have a testnet on Polygon. Um, so you can play with it. Uh, it's not real, but that's great, right? Because you can then learn all the methods, see how fast they operate. And then from there, you can go to production, at which point there'll be some gas fees. Uh, but we really encourage everyone who's a developer here to just have fun, it's super fun, just go build, um, give it a whirl. Like within 45 minutes, I think you'll be like, wow, this is awesome. I have a whole bunch of Web3 methods in my game already. And then from there, go further. Uh, you can reach out to us anytime you want. I'm David at ready.gg. That's David at ready.gg. Happy to interact with any of you listening to this if you have questions. Um, we love helping people be awesome at making games. Fantastic. Well, David, um, thank you a lot for joining I would say if uh, this whole you know Web three platform doesn't work out, so you might have a career in narration. Um, that was thank that you. Was really good. If you need help with the podcast, just uh, ask me to come over anytime. Fantastic. <laughs> if we have a video that we're showing, um, we just ask you to talk over it so the podcast listeners don't feel left out. It's a good idea. My pleasure. All right, gentlemen, thank you for this invitation. It was really a treat to be with you today. Great. Devin, Seb, thank you guys as usual. And most of all, listener, thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed. If you did, let us know. And with that, we are out and we will speak with you next episode. Ciao.